Read you would somebody read that? The Lord said to me, Go, show your love to your wife again, though she be loved by another that is an adulteress. Love her, and the Lord loves you, and the Lord loves you to your wife. So they turn to another God, and love her, take the brazen cake. So I bought her for fifteen shekels of silver. About Tells Hosea to do what? Take his wife back. Take his wife back. Love her again, even though she is she's a harlot. She's been unfaithful to you. She betrayed her love. Just like God says, I have done with Israel, even though Israel does what? Turns to other gods, betraying their marriage covenant with God. And because Israel does what else? Loves raisin cakes. <laughs> you wonder what in the world is that going to do with this? Uh, I will suggest two possibilities. Uh, the first may be more likely right. I like the second one. But uh, <laughs> it may be that raisin cakes were in some way associated with idol worship. And so their loving of raisin cakes had to do with the topic of the worship of idols. Or maybe he's just trying to illustrate how trivial their affections and loyalties are. You know, what do they love? They love raisin cakes. I mean, that's how deep they are. Um, I really like that one, but the first one makes it better. Anyhow, Hosea is supposed to go back and re-love his wife, just like God did with Israel. So... Apparently, this woman, after having been used by her lovers, was unwanted and being sold. I don't know, maybe she was on the auction block or something. And uh, what does uh, Hosea have to pay to get her back? Yeah, 15 shekels of silver, half the price of an ordinary maidservant, so nobody seemed to want her. And uh, and a homer and a half of barley, and maybe that has a connection with the barley used for the offering of a woman suspected of adultery in Numbers five. And so Hosea actually had to pay money to get this woman back and love her again. When you think about it that way, isn't it? Is it not absolutely incredibly amazing that God still loves us? That he is willing, after we've hurt and betrayed him, to love us again. That is an incredible story. Comments and questions on those first two verses. And looking how Hosea had to buy her back, um, think about God buying us back with his son, um, sending him to die for us. Um, that is just unbelievable that he would be willing to do such a thing. Amen. It is. 
mind. You know, it might not be difficult for a man to take back a very attractive, vibrant, <coughs> lovely wife. You think about a woman that number one has betrayed him. I mean, and you're talking about a physical relationship with other men. And you're talking about someone who has been used. I mean, picture the woman now, haggard. I mean, look at prostitutes that have done it for a while. Look at look how they look a lot of times. And imagine a woman like that on the auction block. Nobody wants her. She's been sold because nobody wanted her. And here comes this man, and he says, I'll take her. Think about how we must look when God buys us back. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right, Patrick. I just want to say we serve an awesome God. Amen. Amen. It's amazing how much you learn about God in unlikely places. You probably wouldn't have gone to Hosea first to find out more about God, but wow, you see so much about him here. And so Hosea ends up saying to Gomer, You shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man, so I will also be towards you. Now, I think what this means is there is sort of a, a period of separation for this woman, for Gomer, where she does not go into any other man, nor does she go into Hosea. Sort of a period uh, of time where she has no relationships with anyone. He's bought her, he's taken care of her, but she's not really physical with anyone. And he says, For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols, afterward the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. It looks to me like that what you have here is one of the passages that most explicitly describe the stages of God's blessing of his people. That stage one is they come back and they have, uh, they're taken care of by God. They eliminate the idols, but they also do not have self-government. They are not fully restored back with king and prince. And then afterward they come and they develop the relationship with David, their king. I think the idea is... They first come back to land and they're restored. Do you know of any idolatry in the post-exile period, post-captivity? I don't think there was. I think they eliminated the idols, but they also don't have self-government. They don't really return to the full status that they had had as God's people before yet. And then stage two is through Christ. Then they're brought in to the fullness of the blessings. As they come trembling to the Lord, terrified by their sins perhaps, and to his goodness in the last days. So through the Messiah, the son of David, they are brought to the fullness of blessing. So really God's 
retaking his people to himself was a two-stage process. First stage, they come back from captivity and are purified, but they don't have that closer relationship yet. Second stage, through Christ, they are brought back into full blessing, full relationship with God. I think that's what he's saying in this passage, though few passages make it that explicit. Do you have some questions and comments on that? Fine. That is... I was going to say, at least they finally figured it out. Yes, they did. Yes, indeed. That is the end of kind of the first division of the book. This is the only part of the book that deals much with the whole Hosea Gomer analogy. Now we're going to turn to maybe just a little bit more direct statement on God's part of the situation of the nation and what he's going to do. So chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Hear the word of the Lord, the children of Israel. For the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. By swearing and lying, killing and stealing, they break all restraint, with bloodshed upon bloodshed. Therefore the land will mourn, and the one who dwells there will waste away. With the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, away the fish of the sea will be taken away. Fine. He's calling the people to hear what? <clears throat> the word of the Lord, which is in this case a what? A case, a charge against the inhabitants of the land. It seems to me like God is calling his people to hear his grievance. Maybe even we ought to say he's trying to get the people to hear his courtroom case against them. It's like he's calling them into court and he's going to present the evidence against them. Because what ha- what uh, what ultimate accusation would God make against them in court? They turned away from him. They turned away from him. Legally that's what? Breach of contract. Breach of covenant. God, they had that covenant agreement and they broke it. And so God summons them into court. Here's his case against them. There is no faithfulness, kindness, or knowledge of God in the land. They were violating the basic principles of the covenant. And that's what there isn't. Here's what there is. Swearing, deception, murder, stealing, adultery, violence, bloodshed. That's not a good trade. You know, you give up faithfulness, kindness, and knowledge of God and add these things in verse 2. No wonder God had a case against them, and it was just bad. It was just murder following murder, uh, chaotic conditions. Therefore, what was God uh, seeing in the land? The land was mourning, everyone languishing. It's just a really bad situation. In summary, that's the Lord's case against them. Comments and questions? It's kind of the same thing as Isaiah 1. Yes, it is. He's indicting Israel there, Isaiah. Uh, yeah, uses the same language. There's several passages in the prophets where basically the Lord presents his indictment against the people. And you see not only um, the people here being having 
something happens to them from their sin, but even the land around them, all over the ground, the beasts, the birds in the field. Our sin affects our environment. Caleb. Uh, it's kind of an off-expression related. Where uh, is that like I swear, that's a very good question. I don't know the answer to that. If someone, I, I would assume it's false swearing. That's what I assume, but I'm not sure about that. Josh? Uh, there seems to be a lot of overlap and the forth with the Ten Commandments. Yes. So perhaps that's uh, very false swearing. Yeah, it could be. Yeah, that would be a reasonable explanation. Uh, taking Solomon's is never condemned in the Bible, as far as I know. But uh, perjury and things like that. Okay, um, four to six. Yet let no one find fault, and let none offer reproof. For your people are like those who contend with the priest. So you will stumble by day, and the prophet also will stumble with you by night. And I will destroy your life. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you have rejected knowledge. I will also reject you from being my priest, since you have forgotten the law of your God. I also will forgive your children. Very ironic. Let no one find fault. Let none offer reproof. But why would he say not to reprove a people like this? I don't think so, but that's a good good answer. I think that's it. Don't waste your breath. They don't listen. They don't respond. Don't, don't bother. It won't do any good. Of course, Proverbs talks a lot about the wisdom of listening to reproof. These people don't. They're like those who contend with the priest. The priests were responsible to instruct them in the will of God, but they'd argue with the priests. You know, they won't listen when you reprove them. So, what's going to happen? You'll stumble by day. The prophet will also stumble with you by night. You know, the leaders will stumble right along with the people. I will destroy your mother, my people will destroy for lack of knowledge. You rejected knowledge, I will reject you. You've forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. Do you see that pattern? The punishment fits the crime. Look at the verbs. And we're starting five. Stumble, stumble. Destroy, destroy. Rejected, reject. Forgotten, forget. The idea is what they do, God will do back to them. God will punish them in the terms of what they've done. And so you see them helplessly tottering along on their way to destruction, rejected and forgotten by the Lord because they have rejected and forgotten the Lord. These are people that there doesn't look to be very much hope for because they won't listen, because they're not sensitive to the word and will of God. Comments and questions? In Deuteronomy 17, verse 12, it talks about a man who strives with the priest and that he should be put to death, I think is what it says there. So the way that passage reads to me is, if this person is going to listen to the heart of the word of someone who's trying to correct them, then they're already on the path, like you're saying. So that's just for the justification of me, especially today to us, if we don't listen to the things that need to make us better, as we spoke in the last couple of chapters, and we're just, you know, running our boat right out into the rock. And maybe it would be helpful for clarification to point out one thing that sometimes is not 
recognized about priests. I grew up thinking that the job of the priest was to offer the sacrifices. That's their job, but it's by no means their only, maybe not even their main job. The, one of the big responsibilities God gave to the priest was instructing the people. They were the ones who were supposed to teach the people the will of God. You don't listen to priests, you're not listening to God's word. Other comments? Notice that in verse 1 and verse 6, if you don't have knowledge of bad things, you have to you. You think about Christ and he talks about if you don't grow, he's going to cut you off. As Christians of God, if we have the desire that we should, are we desiring to grow or desiring to learn His Word? If we understand His precepts, it's going to be a lot easier for us not to commit adultery. No doubt. Knowledge of the Lord and His will is fundamental. Other comments? It's the idea of contending with the priest when the Lord's, another job of the priest, but they're the judges of the people. Their decision stood. So what the Lord's saying... Don't rebuke one another. Don't try to fix this because the judgment's already passed. It doesn't matter at this point if you guys decide, let's all try to change. He said, this is going to happen no matter what you do. Or maybe arguing against what the priests were teaching. I, I think I might prefer that. You know, have you ever seen anybody who's like, uh, I don't know, this is probably my generation's expression, but like... Uh, you know, uh, somebody saying about some contentious fellow, well, he'd argue with the fence post, or something like that. The idea is, uh, who might win? You know, uh, you have a uh, close encounter with a uh, well-established object. Uh, probably the object will remain in place, and whatever you have the encounter with, this object will be damaged. Um, you know, these people are dumb enough, they'll, they'll argue with the word of God. You're not going to get anywhere with that. Uh, the word of God is right, regardless of what we uh, are counter-arguments against it. Yes, I was wondering if maybe the priests weren't doing their job because there was a lack of knowledge, and it says that I reject you from being a priest, and in Ezekiel it's all over the place for condemning the priests for not teaching their people. That may be. Uh, I'm not so convinced of that at this point, but it may be. Uh, this is a little, you know, being sure of what the reference is here is difficult. And when you come to verse 7, it does seem to be against the priests, but I'm not so sure it is here in 4 to 6. It's not teaching to people that don't listen. That is a problem. Yes. And sometimes, <laughs> if I'm right in my understanding of this, sometimes we reject even the message God gives us through someone who's teaching us. It's the truth, but we don't want to listen. So what do you do? If we, you know, do you ever reject somebody who tells you something you need to hear? They're telling you the truth, but you steel yourself against it. Well, how are you going to learn that way? You know, if you're not receptive to the truth that somebody tells you because it offends you, or it hurts your feelings, or makes you mad, or you feel like, well, you're not perfect, why are you telling me this? Well, you know, it's a useful thing if I know it, even if an imperfect person told me, <clears throat> if it's the truth. It's the Word of God. It doesn't matter where it comes from. It's the Word of God. 
You don't reject a letter because you don't like the manners of the mailman. <laughs> the messenger that gives you the word of the Lord may not be somebody you care for, but if he gives you the message of God, it's all right. All right, how about 7 to 10? The more they increase, the more they sin against me. I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat, but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore, but not multiply. Because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish. Did you go through 10? The more they multiplied, the more they sinned against me. It's almost like the more God blessed them, the farther away they got. That's a sad commentary on how we deal with God's blessings and success. Ought to make us feel more grateful, sometimes makes us feel more complacent. And since they attributed their prosperity to the idols, the more they have, then the more they worship the gods. Now he seems, to, at least by the time he gets to verse 8, to be talking about the priests. He says, they feed on the sin of my people and direct their desire toward their iniquity, and it will be like people like priests. So I will punish them for their ways. Now, how would the priests feed on the sin of the people? Exactly! Priest eats some of the sin offerings. So as a priest, what do you want the people to do? Sin more, you get to eat more. That is really horrible. When the priests get to where they long for the sin offerings instead of mourning transgressions. And so since they were doing that, he will repay them, they will eat but not have enough. You know, he will repay this greed for sacrificial meat by a lack of food. Because they've stopped giving heed to the Lord. So it looks to me like this is a condemnation of the priests for actually desiring the sin of the people instead of trying to stop them from sin. Comments and questions? Through verse 10. Yes, Josh. The... Uh it just seems like there's so much to learn from verse 7. The more they sin, the more they increase, the more they sin against me. It just seems like wealth in general has a way of cultivating materialism. Yes, it does. And those who try to hang on to it. I agree. I mean, Jesus said, sell your possessions and give alms and provide yourselves to the purses that you not grow old, but the treasure in the heavens that do not fail. You know, it reminds me of uh, Tommy Buehler and his lecture on neither poverty nor riches. Uh, four college lectures once told the story of John Wesley who, when he first started his professorship, he, he made 30 pieces of silver and he gave two to the poor. Later on, he made 60 pieces of silver. He still kept only 28 and 32 to the poor. But later on, he made 90 kept only 28 and gave the rest to the board. Finally, at the end of his life, he made 120, and he was keeping only 30 for himself and giving the rest to the poor. And uh, Paul says, we pierce ourselves through with many sorrows when we, when we board our money. Amen. 
Other comments? Yes, John. feed that problem when we buy into the health and wealth gospel that's taught today and we, we, we say, well, God must be blessing my life. Uh, he must be pleased with my life because he's giving me more. So I'm just going to continue in my current lifestyle. Yes. Build another barn. Yes. <laughs> Good comments. I almost kind of see verse 7 as God giving me things almost like a weapon to be used against him. All these things God gives them, they again turn on him and sin against him in that often do we give people things to use against us. We're very reserved about that and we want to be careful because the Lord here is continuing to bless them as they continue to use those against him. I think from a New Testament perspective, we miss the point of why God gives us blessings and prosperity. We think he gave this to us for us to use self-indulgently when really he gave them to us to use for him in his service. You know, it's amazing God, we're stewards, God's entrusted us with something to use for a particular purpose, and we pervert the purpose and spend it on our own desires. Josh? I'm sure it must have been difficult preaching this message to the people to get the people to see how that was practically true in their own lives. But I wonder, you know, how can we look at this from our perspective and see how much is enough? If, if we have $2 to spend on a cup of coffee, you know, the, at Starbucks, do we have two dollars for a floor person? If we have fifteen dollars for a CD, do we have fifteen dollars for visiting widows and orphans? You know, and we tell ourselves, well, it's just a little here for this and a little for that. But you know, what if it was a little for this this person and a little for that person? And so we've got to really look to the Lord and love Him, and then seek to serve which will reflect, be reflected in everything about our life. About uh, 11 to 14. Harlotry, wine, and new wine, taking away the understanding. My people consult their wooden idol, and the diviner's wand informs them. For a spirit of harlotry has led them astray, and they have played the harlot, departing from their God. They offer sacrifices on the tops of the mountains, and burn incense on the hills, under oak, poplar, and terebinth, because their shade is pleasant. Therefore your daughters play the harlot, and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they play the harlot, or your brides when they commit adultery. For the men themselves go apart with the harlots, and offer sacrifices with temple prostitutes, so the people without understanding are ruined. Some interesting statements here. Look at verse 11. Harlotry, wine, and new wine take away the understanding. Do you understand how wine takes away the understanding? How? Oh. Yeah. Like, what does it do to your mind? Yeah, pickles your brain. <laughs> so, you would expect the consumption of alcoholic beverages to take away the understanding. Harlotry takes away the understanding? Does that sound strange to you? That doesn't pickle your brain, does it? Yeah? How so, Claire? One evil lust, anything that makes us drunk, I mean, Jesus warned about the, the search and do something that's going to be drunk, even just in love with the world. We need to recognize that. Lust perverts our thinking just like drunkenness does. It takes away the understanding. We become blinded. 
we become skewed in our thinking. It, it, it affects us and dulls our perception. Um, so that's a, that's a profound statement. These things that the people were giving themselves to kept them from even seeing the truth. Here's the illustration of that. You want to see how these things have taken away their understanding? Look at verse 12. My people consult their wooden idol. My people talk to a block of wood for guidance. Pretty good evidence that their understanding has been taken away by something. If they do that, it's pretty outrageous. A spirit of harlotry has led them astray, for they played the harlot, departing from the living God. Um, and he may be almost making a double play on the word harlotry, unfaithfulness to God, and even physical adultery. Uh, because of what he'll say in 14. But especially the idolatry, because in 13 they offer sacrifices on the tops of the mountains, burn incense on the hills. And what kind of places do they choose for their idol worship centers? Shade. The shade. It's almost like a picnic environment. They go out there, they barbecue some meat to the gods and enjoy a, a nice picnic in the shade. And how do they feel about this? What do they think about the shade? It's pleasant. They really enjoyed this. Of course, that's the only benefit they got out of it was just some shade when it's all said and done. But how many times does our worship and our service to God mostly satisfy our own desires and make us happy instead of seeking to glorify God? He said, what you're doing is you're finding the nice, pleasant, shady spots to offer sacrifices to God, to God's, because you like it. God didn't consult with us as to what we were going to like when he told us what he wanted us to do for him. It really doesn't make any difference what we like. That's not the point. I think God knows what he likes. He knows what he likes. And so he knows that we have to get out of our comfort zone a little bit to try to do this so that we show our true love for him. That's exactly right. Yeah, good point. And so, he says, therefore your daughters play the harlot, your brides commit adultery. That's pretty bad. Their daughters, even their brides, are sexually unfaithful to them. But look at what he says. I will not punish your daughters when they play the harlot, or your brides when they commit adultery. I'm not going to correct them. I'm just going to let them do it. Well, why won't he, why won't he put a stop to this? Yet to destroy anyone who was committing uh, adultery, then he'd have to kill all the men and women. You're doing the same thing, guys. Now, this is a remarkable passage because it's refusing to treat men's sexual sins more lenient than the women's. He says, For the men themselves go with our heart with harlots and offer sacrifice with temple prostitutes. You know, how many times do we want other people to be punished for the very same things we're doing? How many times do we think they ought to be rebuked and there ought to be a, a stop put to what they do when we're committing the same thing? So they show their hypocrisy. Their service to God consisted in what they wanted for themselves and others and not will seeking the will of the Lord in their lives. So he says the people without understanding are ruined. Comments and questions, Seth? Thank you. Uh, those of us who are men could learn from this that uh, the men here should have been the leaders and should have put a stop to it rather than taking part in it. You know, it's, 
it's ultimately the people who are in authority who have the responsibility to call Good point. Well, not only that, but I mean, if men weren't taking a part in it, there wouldn't be any problem with Carlos shooting together. It does take two. Yeah. But Here, in this passage, I may be wrong about this, but when God's saying, I want to punish your daughters, blah, 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 is it possible that, and we often make the point that within sin, there's the kind of destruction within itself. I mean, think about, think about what happens in a marriage relationship when people are unfaithful. You've got, you've got suspicion, you've got distrust, you've got a wall, you've got all these things. So, within that, when God's going to be faithful, then when we don't do that, I mean, it's, it's a, in a sense, it's a punishment in itself. I don't know if he means that in context. I, I think that's part of it. I mean, I think God not punishing them almost leaves them to enjoy the bitter fruit of their own sin. So in a sense, it's a punishment when he doesn't stop them from doing that. Kind of like Romans 1, giving them over to their sins. I agree with that. talked about earlier in earlier chapters how the punishment's really the true blessing of God because it makes you realize what you're doing. Yes. And his frustration with these people is so great that he's just going to ignore them. He says, not only am I going to, am I fed up with what you're doing, I'm just going to let it keep on happening. I'm not even going to give you the blessing of letting you know how wrong you are. Yes. Sometimes the worst curse God can give us is just to give us over to our sins and let us do what we choose. So look at this last section, and then we'll pause. 15 to 19. O you, Israel, play the harlot. Do not let Judah become guilty. Also do not go to Gilgal or go up to Bethaven, and take the oath as the Lord lives. Since Israel is stubborn, like a stubborn heifer, can the Lord now pasture them like a lamb in a large field? Ephraim is joined to idols, let him alone. Through liquor gone, they play the harlot continually. Their rulers dearly love shame. The wind wraps them in its wings. And they will be ashamed because of their sacrifices. Okay. So, he says, um, jo- Israel's playing the harlot, but Judah, don't you do this. Don't go to Gilgal, evidently a place of idolatrous shrines. Don't go up to Beth-Avon. Beth-Avon? You remember think about Beth-Avon in the Bible? Bethel. Yeah, it was Bethel. What does he call it? Beth-Avon. Bethel's house of the Lord. House of God, yeah. He calls it house of wickedness instead. Yes, or house of emptiness, something like that. He's making a play on the fact that Bethel is not house of God anymore. Remember what they had at Bethel? The golden calf? Uh, and so he says it's a house of emptiness. Don't go there! Don't, Judah, involve yourself in the sins of Israel. Since Israel's stubborn like a stubborn heifer, you just need to let him alone. He's joined to his idols. Just let him go. Don't become attached to him. Uh, my, da- my dad, uh, and this may be, I don't know if this, he coined this, or if this was uh, an expression back in uh, whatever days he grew up, but he always used to talk about being independent as a hog on ice. And uh, I think you can get the idea. I, I assume that hogs are rather stubborn and independent. 
get one uh, on ice who would be sliding and falling every which direction and already stubborn, you just can't do anything with it. And that's what God's saying about these people. You can't do anything with them. They're just a stubborn heifer. You're not going to be able to help them. You're not going to be able to manage them. Just let them alone. You know, Judah, don't you get involved with them. It's useless even to try to recover her. She won't listen. They, their liquor's gone. They play the harlot continually. Their, their rulers dearly love shame. So God's going to, to send them into captivity. Uh, in a large field, he says in verse 16, and they'll be ashamed because of their sacrifices. So, so God is going to uh, severely punish them because of the things that they have done. Uh, they're going to be caught up in this, these forces that they have no control over. And the Assyrian wind storm will take them away. So this is God saying, I'm, I've had it with Israel. Judah, you just make sure you stay far away. <laughs> Comments and questions? Nathan? It's just thinking about the stubborn effort. Um, I've gotten to work with cows just a little bit. And uh, we're running through to give them a shot. And you can wail on a cow. You can get the electric cattle prod whatever. He doesn't want to go. <laughs> and you're doing things that Excellent illustration. Yes, Bill. I mean, we're not accused to tell us in the parable the son what the young son is like, but we're told that he asked for it, father gave it to him, we have to buy. Probably a very stubborn son, and father knew better. The battle with him now is to your thing. Which is a terrible thing, but what do you do? I mean, God sometimes just decides you're bound to determine. Okay. Up to you. You know, it's so bad when God gives us over to the fruit of our own sinful, rebellious, stubborn choices. But that happens. Other comments? I'd be so ashamed to even think about that. I remember one time when I was little, I did something to my dad, and my dad was just like, I'm done with you. He didn't want to talk to me. Do you think about... He didn't want to talk to me because he didn't want to do something dumb and probably hit me harder than he should have and spank me worse than I should have. Trust me, he spanked me pretty hard several times. But, uh... If you think about God saying, I'm done with you, just go. Think about how detrimental and how scary that truly is to you. If God would say... Ted, I don't even want to see you. Or Gary, I don't even want to see you. John, I don't even want to see you. How scary is that? And just go away, do your own thing. I don't really like being called a heifer, but on the other hand, <laughs> I can understand. I, I was born on a farm, and there are some dumb animals out there, and a lot of times I'm right there with them. Yeah. Don't you appreciate the graphic nature of some of these illustrations? It's one of the beauties of Hosea, and we'll continue to see that. Some of them are a little more difficult, but man, once you see what they're what they're saying, it just makes the picture come alive. I like the phrase where he says, like a lamb in open country is gonna let him roam, let him forage. Sheep are incredibly stupid animals. 
And it's very humbling to me that God always compares us to sheep. <laughs> but not only that, they're incredibly weak and completely incapable of taking care of themselves. They'll fall over and just lay down and die because they're not smart enough to roll over and get back up. And that's why they have all these shepherds. And you talk about everything a shepherd had to carry with him to get the sheep out of their own trouble. And just going to take that lamb and just throw it out in the wilderness by itself and see how long that lasts. It's going to lay down and die. It's going to get torn apart by wolves. It's going to starve to death. It can't do anything. But God has reached that point to say that I'm going to do that because that sheep is too stupid to realize how much it needs me. Excellent point. Once the wolf's got the sheep in its mouth, it's going to realize real quickly and too late. Yeah. <coughs> yes. Well, if we go with that same analogy with the Lord calling a sheep, and then we think about the great dependency that we need um, for Him, you think about why Jesus told us to become like little children. And we can't. I don't think any of us have ever seen a two or three year old be able to live by him himself and take care of themselves. They're so dependent on their parents because they know they need them. They want to survive and want to help them want to help them live. The same thing with us with Christ. You know, going back to the parable of God the Son, I think it's also a testament to the will of that father to realize that he was not going to tolerate sin in his household. And he knew the heart of his son and what and really what his son wanted to do with that money. And that's why he went to bed. And like like we said before, the same thing with us today when we know in our hearts what we want to do, God knows it just as well. And he's gonna let us go off to the hard country of sin until we fall down on our faces to come back. Very good. <coughs> Josh. I think another aspect we need to think about is just like a parent who has nothing to do with the children, the children aren't gonna listen to them pain that that parent has to have to just let you go or her go and learn that kind of pain that God has to let these people go and know what it must take to her. Yes, you're right. You really see a lot of God's emotions in Hosea, and that's helpful to us. Other thoughts? Larry? Yeah, I just want to ask a question about something Josh just made a statement about. You know, you see parents a lot of times when they have children that are rebellious and they um, really, I guess, letting them continue to live in their sin, you know, stay at home, and they're afraid that if they let them go or something, something terrible will happen. But sometimes the more they harbor them, the worse they become. But on the other hand, you may feel like if you let them go and something did happen, they would have died in sin, the guilt that you would feel over doing that. So, you know, and I, I don't know if this is a statement or question out there. You can understand the dilemma that people feel and the love for the children and wanting to help them and yet sheltering them, sometimes harming them even more, but yet letting them go in the destruction of the It is so difficult to love someone so much and realize that person is unwilling to make the choices that would be in their own best interest. And what you really like to do is make them do it. And sometimes parents make that effort. You know, I'm going to make, you know, my, you know, even 30-year-old child or 50-year-old child do what I want them to. Well, you can't do that. And if you could, wouldn't count. It's amazing that God is 
willing sometimes to allow us to suffer taking the risk and the pain. That's hard to do when you love someone. And it really is. It's hard to, to come to grips with the fact that sometimes people we really love will very foolishly make choices that will hurt them greatly. And can you imagine what God feels like when we foolishly make choices that hurt us deeply? He's begged us, he's pleaded with us, he's taught us, he's chasing us. And there's nothing else you can do and give us our free will and teach us. We think about that kind of thing with how God does things. He doesn't give them these commandments because he likes making rules. And that childlike mindset, when I was a kid, my parents told me not to stick my finger in the light socket. And after the first five minutes unconscious on the floor, I realized why. <laughs> and we talk about the guilt we're going to feel if we let that happen, if we let them go play in traffic, if we let them go play with fire. But Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 says, deliver such a one to Satan. If they won't listen to you, he said, that's the only thing you can do. If they refuse to have it God's way, let them have, them, have it their way. Let them have the destruction of the flesh. And maybe in the end, because we didn't coddle them, because we didn't say, well, maybe they'll come around, let's just keep, let them keep doing what they're doing, act like we agree, maybe they'll change. You see, God had tried to rebuke these people, and they didn't change. So what he's gotten to the point of is he said, let's just let them live and wallow in the mud for a while. And after they've done that for long enough, maybe they'll come around and they'll realize why I said all those things I said. Right, good points. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've had Time's really up here, so why don't we uh, stop here? And uh, I think later on today we'll have occasion to uh, do some more in Hosea. So I'll turn this over to you guys to do whatever you would like to do.